Welcome back, everybody, to this edition of the Classic Rock Podcast. And coming up today, we're going to be hearing from Alice Cooper about his number one album, Detroit Stories. Our main guest this month has been described as many things. A trailblazer, an inspiration, a survivor. Detroit's very own queen of rock and roll, Susie Quattro, who is about to release her new album. It's called The Devil in Me. It's her best new music since her heyday in the mid-1970s. It really is that good. We're going to be hearing a selection of tracks from the album, and we're going to be talking to Susie about a career that has spanned five and a half decades. First up, though, new music. What a year it's been already for great new albums. Uh, Dead Daisies, Michael Schenker, Alice Cooper, Cats in Space, to name just a few. And you can add this to the list. It is the 13th album from British band Thunder. Now, if you are listening to the show over in the US, which a great many of you are, uh, then their popularity is maybe not quite what it is over in Europe. They're a bit of a well-kept secret over in the States, but uh, over here... Their popularity has rarely dimmed over the years. The album is called All the Right Noises, which sums it up really rather beautifully. 48 minutes and 21 seconds of noise, and it's all good, including this. This is the opening track. It's called The Last One Out, Turn Out the Lights.
Suarez Thunder from the new album All the Right Noises. It is out now. So where do you start when you surmise the life and the career of Susie Quattro? Well, why not pass the mic over to Jerry Curry, Joan Jett, Alice Cooper, Andy Scott, Debbie Harry, Kathy Valentine, Danita Sparks. Uh, this is what they had to say about Susie Quattro. She was the first and broke the ice and kicked the door for us gals. I've never seen a woman with an instrument in a band. At that time, rock was a male-orientated business. She has transcended her gender. She is now just considered an icon. A lot of girls that tried to be Susie Quadro, but when it's in the DNA, you can't fake that. Certainly her position in being like the first woman leading a band, having hits like that. This woman has so much energy, so much talent. She could have done anything. She did far more than show that women could play music. She showed us that we could be who we were. Because with Susie, there was never a question. Susie had a dream in Detroit, and all these years later, she is still living that dream. That is amazing. Detroit. Alice Cooper, talking a couple of days ago, said this is the best musical city in the world. And if you run down a list of the, the alumni, Cooper, Franklin, Seeger, Diana Ross, Grand Funk, John Lee Hooker, Madonna, and of course, you. Is he right? Is it the best musical city in the world? Oh, God, yeah, we've we've had this conversation many times, me and Allison, in fact, a lot of the other people from Detroit. It is, it's got, uh, there's an edge to the city. There's an electric, and every everybody who's come out of that city, you can feel that same crackle in them. Every single person, yeah, it's it is the best city I think for music. You, we had the best of everything. You had music in the family, didn't you? Literally from from the get go. I mean, there's lovely stories about you and your sisters putting on shows, uh, family occasions, Christmas. Uh, Easter weekends as well. But it wasn't just the five of you either, was it? Your mother was a, a quite extraordinary woman as well. I mean, she, she took in something like, what, nine orphan kids to look after at times as well. Amazing. She was a real mom, mom. She Like, she had five kids, and then through the years, nine different orphans. So... You know, she was the kind. She was the kind of mom that you could uh, that you could eat off the kitchen floor. It was that clean, crazy. But um, she was a big, big, big influence in my life. Uh, a, a strict Catholic woman, with a, with a sense of mischief about her too. Uh, just uh, and everybody that met her, be it girlfriends, ex boyfriends, whatever, they all absolutely loved her. You always said that you knew you would be famous, but you didn't actually know what route you were going to follow, actress, singer. Uh, and surprisingly for some, you, you thought you might be a comedian. 
<laughs> I am actually very funny. <laughs> and I did actually write, I did write a letter to uh, Red Skelton. He was a very well-known comic and he had his own television show. And I, I wrote him a letter and said, Dear Red, <laughs> I'm very funny. And I think you should hire me for your show. I was about 10. And he never got in touch. And I was really devastated. <laughs> you wrote that on, in did. the back of a car, didn't you, on a road yeah, trip? I did. I did. <laughs> it was my first professional rejection. <laughs> did you deal with it well? Yeah, I, I guess so. I figured, oh, well, he doesn't doesn't want me. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I always knew I would be in the profession Let's put it that way. And I didn't know which avenue it was going to take, but I knew I would be an entertainer doing something because I love performing in front of audiences. And I'm also extremely creative, very prolific writer, you know. I'm, I'm an artiste, if I can use that word. Yeah, no, no, no it's good. You like, uh, like many others, I imagine, the the moment that, that changed it all, and you, you highlight these moments. The Ed Sullivan Show, a Sunday night, what is it, 8 o'clock? Uh, we didn't have him, obviously, ever here. Uh, first of all, it was Elvis Presley. Yeah, boy, oh, boy. They, they, are, they are pivotal moments in somebody's life, all these things. I was only five and a half, and um, it, it was a essential viewing for all American families. We all sat down at 8 o'clock and we watched it together because it was a variety show. And at the end, he'd always bring out something for the youngsters, as he used to say. So on came up Pesley. I always remember during Don't Be Cruel. And um, my elder sister, the eldest one in the family by nine years to me, she was just the right age and she started to scream. And uh, I looked at her and thought, what, what's, what's the matter with you? Why are you screaming? And then I looked at the television and I literally went into the set. It was like, drew me in. And at five and a half, I had the light bulb moment. I thought to myself, I'm going to do that. And that's exactly how it happened. I'm going to do that. I knew it. Crazy at that age to even have that thought. Now there's, uh, there's a lot of children in Catholic families that are sitting here right at this moment thinking you were allowed to stay up until nine o'clock on a Sunday night, which is a school night, and you were allowed television on a Sunday. Uh-oh. <laughs> we did have family get-togethers. That was one of our rituals. The Beatles were next up, and that was, it was after, wasn't it, after watching the Beatles that you yes. decided that it was going to be a band and you were all going to get together? Correct. It was again, so strange, another pivotal moment. And it was again the Ed Sullivan show. And uh, the Beatles came on. They did. I saw her standing there, I believe. And we all we all got on the phones after that. We called our two sister friends that lived around the corner. And the other girl lived around two, two houses away. And her dad played my dad band, which is strange enough. And we all were talking, excited, excited, excited. And my sister Patty, the one in the year next to me, the older one to me, she said, why don't we start an all-girl band? And we all thought that was a great idea. I didn't so much care if it was girls. I just wanted to play. Um, and I never did really care, but she cared about it. Anyway, everybody grabbed an instrument and I didn't speak up quick enough. So I just said, once the uh, blah, 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 blah died down, I said, hey, hello, what am I going to play? And Patty said, you're playing bass. And it's strange because I already played percussion and piano, you know, real good. I took, I was schooled in both those. So I went and asked my dad, I said, we're having a band, dad. And my dad's a musician and he had everything in the house that your little heart desired. So I said, do you have a bass I can use? And he said, sure. 
and he gave me a 1957 Fender Precision. That was my first bass. Unbelievable, because it is the Rolls Royce of bass guitars.
I mean, well, we were, we were, we were okay. We were, I would say upper middle class, not, not rich. No, but I mean, my dad had to work two jobs, you know, five kids. Yeah. 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 And you did find the bongos as well, didn't you? The Christmas present. Yes. You were a type of child that went to look for your presents before Christmas day. I was, but I was also, I was also the type of child who was honest about it. Yes. My mother, my mother told me very young, don't, don't bother to lie because you can't. She told me this real young, your face shows everything. So I became a very honest person. I have heard a thing for that. Yeah, I did find them in the, uh, in his cupboard, beautiful set of bongo drums. And me being me, I actually went to him and I said, hi dad, I found my gift. And he said, he said to me, do you mean those bongos in my closet? I said, yeah. And he said, do you actually think I would give a $200 set of bongo drums to a little girl like you? And I went, oh, oh, okay. And then on Christmas, I opened them up and they were mine. And I, what a, that was clever of him. I totally, totally believed him. The original name, or one of the original names that you, you came up with, was a really good name, by the way. I, I didn't know this until I, I read it. The Hedonists. Oh, yeah. Well, we were trying to find the name for the band, and we looked up. We were just looking at names and everything, and somebody in a dictionary, just trying to find a name that jumped out, and somebody found Hedonist. And so we read it, and it said to seek pleasure. And so somebody said, ah, the pleasure seekers. There you go. We had the name. Good name. First song you ever did on stage, was it Louis Louis or was it Twist and Shout? There was three songs. We did one, our first gig. We learned three songs, all the same three chords. And it was Twist and Shout and it was Louis Louis and it was uh, Let No Be Lou.
And when I went up there on that first gig, I was 14, we stood up on that stage and I had that another light bulb moment standing there with my bass in front of an audience. And in my little brain, I went, I'm home. I actually had that thought, I'm home. You felt that comfortable? That comfortable. Comfortable and confident. Here I am. This is what I do. Did your parents ever find out about the night with the Blues Magoo's bass player? No. <laughs> they would have killed me. Oh, my God. Oh, my God almighty. That was my first psychedelic experience watching a band that just really blew my mind. They were incredible. And uh, that was my first time I ever smoked a joint. And I think my last time too, because I was only a kid and I ended up talking to the bass player in his room and he said, do you take this? I said, sure, what a liar. And then, and then I had a puff and I said, oh, it didn't do anything. And I had three, like an <laughs> idiot. And I was finished. I hated it. I never did it again. You know, but look at the big mouth. Oh, yeah, yeah, I do this all the time. What a jerk. And I waited five seconds and I said, oh, I can't feel anything. <laughs> Great story. You're getting record deals as well that are dropping on the mat almost at will, aren't you? I mean, between the ages of 14 and 17. 17, you end up on Mercury Records, which was a huge record label. I mean, what was it like at the time? You've got this this record, com record company contract in front of you. I mean, you must be thinking... This is it. We've arrived. Well, well, I mean, we had, with the Pleasure Seekers, we had a record out on the Hideout label, um, and that's become a real cult favorite. What a way to die. It's all about drinking beer. Then we had a couple of singles released on Mercury, and then we formed Cradle, which is when I took a back seat, a little bit of a back seat, because uh, I was always the front person completely, and we wanted to bring my little sister in, and we had done a festival as the Pleasure Seekers, which was a show band, basically, and we died. And so we decided to change the band around, get heavy, write our own material. Little Sister was brought in. I took a back seat. I got very good on my bass, uh, which I'm glad about, because it married up the, the uh, experience of the front person with just stepping back and playing. So it really was great when I finally went solo, because I had both elements. And um, Electro Records saw Cradle, and they offered me a solo contract. And I only did two songs a night, by the way. Just goes to show you that if you have the X Factor, you can't hide it at the back of the, uh, you can't hide it at the back of the band mm. because it will shine out anyway. And the same week, Mickey Most came to see the band in exactly the same week with Jeff Beck and Cozy Powell. They were going to use Motown Studios. And he saw the band and he also offered me a solo contract. So... My time to go, obviously, that's a no-brainer. You feel it in you. Two offers in one week, my time to go. Um, no-brainer, professionally, emotionally, very, very hard.
about the the moment that you you saw the rather legendary, of course, now Mrs. Beasley, who predicted all of this stuff would actually happen. Oh my God, I I made friends with a with a girl at one of the uh, sh at, at Eastland Shopping Center actually, and uh, we started talking. And we got talking about spiritual stuff, and I said, oh, I believe in all this, and I'm very, very sort of intuitive, and I'm kind of a little bit psychic myself, and blah, blah, blah. And she said, oh, you should go see this lady I know, this Mrs. Beasley. I said, very unlikely name. I said, why? She said, well, she's, she's good. She tunes in, and she can tell you about your life. I went, oh, it sounds interesting. So I went. She lives just in a little house in a suburb, a little like grandma lady, you know. Mm. And uh, she gets a pad of paper, and she tunes in and writes. And then when she's done, she reads to you what she's written. It's up to you to make sense of it. And, I mean, she's not, she wasn't a weird person, you know, just normal grandma-looking lady. And she told me I was uh, going to come to England. I went, yeah, right. Like, how am I going to get to England, or why would I go to England? She told me my first car would be a blue sports car, and it was. It was a blue Mercedes, 280SL. Uh, there was a lot of things she told me that came true. She saw success with the number five and roses. I'm not quite sure what that is yet, and maybe it's come true because we used roses on my last video for The Devil in Me, so I'm not sure about that one. I kept that booklet with me. I brought it to England, and I lost it, damn it. You know, what a shame. She was good because even my parents went to see her and she told my parents stuff that nobody could have known. So she was good. You ended up with a photograph, didn't you, the, with your old house, with, with your mother appearing in the window. Yeah, that, that was a weird one. Uh, and no, no, nobody can explain this. We, I was there for my birthday, my 60th birthday, and we stopped at my old house and nobody was home because the people that bought it are doctors. So we walked around the house naturally, memory, memory, memory. We went around the back and took a picture of, of sisters against the window, you know? And then when we got the pictures developed, there was a side view, this is so crazy, a side view of my mother. You couldn't mistake it with the earrings on that she always wore. And I thought, am I imagining this? It was nuts, and I even showed it um, to my one of my nephews. He came to visit me. I didn't tell him this. I didn't tell him she was in that picture. I just said, look, what do you see in this picture? And he said, oh, there's Grandma. And now, how did that happen? I don't know. I don't know, and I have no explanation for it. It's incredible. Now, yeah. It must have taken an enormous degree of, uh, of courage for you to get on a plane to go to a strange country, England, on your own, and arrive, obviously, wearing yellow hot pants, but that's another story. And then Mickey <laughs> Mouse picks you up in, in a Rolls Royce and drops you off in this, in Bedsit land, when it Aston House Villas down in Earl's Court. It was, uh, yeah, it was hard. It, it uh, You know, in the one way, I was so excited I couldn't stand it. I knew it's what I wanted. I knew that Mickey believed in me. I could see it in his face. I knew he saw me as I was, although he could never get it on in the studio. He just couldn't couldn't produce my edge. And then I end up in this little tiny room without even its own bathroom, just a little a little bed and a, and a mirror and a sink, you know. Um, I, I, I was determined, though, absolutely determined to not go back 
until I had success under my belt. And it was never an option. And sure, it was lonely. My God, I cried myself to sleep a lot. But, you know, it was what I wanted. And I stuck to it. And, and like I said, Mickey believed in me. And that was good enough for me. The moment that it all turned around, where you, where you hit rock bottom before you realized that everything is going to go up from here, was the night that you shared the bill with the, the kinks and was it Bertha? And it was a bit of a nightmare. But then everything then began to turn in your favor. It was a nightmare. It was just one of those things. It was my first time I ever played in England. I had a trio together, me, a drummer and a guitar player. And uh, we were the opening act. And uh, I went on there and my amp blew up within one or two minutes of starting. I had no roadies. So I had to stop playing and try to fix it. And the guitar player took over the set. He started playing his own songs. So Mickey heard about it and he called me up in the room and he screamed at me. That, you know, how dare you embarrass me and blah, blah. He really gave me a hard time. It was character building in a way. And it was after that night that I really got my balls. I did. I thought, this is not right. This is not right. And then I really, that, that was a turning point for me. Because, you know, what happened there was not my fault. There should have been at least a roadie there or something to help me out, you know. Made me very strong. And Mickey often referred to it as saying it was character building. I think he felt bad. <laughs> the the leather conversation with Mickey most. No, 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 no. It's all been done before. Uh, you you got the seed of the idea, didn't you, after seeing Elvis in the in the '68 comeback special? But it was Mickey Most, wasn't it, that recommended the the jumpsuit? Absolutely, I always wanted leather after seeing that comeback special. Absolutely, I knew that one day when when it came my time to get the image together, that's what I would wear. I always wore blue jeans and a leather jacket anyway, and um, and Mickey said, "Okay, okay, okay, you can wear leather." He was against it. And he said, what about a jumpsuit? And I just thought in my naivety that it was simply a logical decision because I jump around on stage a lot and everything stays in one place. And I, honest to God, did not know that it was sexy. I didn't know it until I You're got the kidding. picture. You're kidding. I've heard no, you I say am that. Not. You must have known. No. Really? I swear to God. I swear to God. When I got the pictures back that Gerard Mankiewicz had taken, yeah. I looked at them and I went, Oh, <laughs> it was yeah, like you, a little girl. You were, you were oh. about 25 million teenage boys as well. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. You know what, though? I'll tell you what. Had I known it was sexy, that picture would not be the same. There is an innocence in that yeah, picture. Yeah. You know, it's not like I'm trying to be sexy. This is why it worked. Nikki Chin and Mike Chapman, extraordinary success with you and a number of other people Th their record in that year that you kicked off a 48 crash devil get drive etc etc they had 19 top 40 hits um what a partnership yeah we had a good partnership we still work together and i was still very good friends uh at that time they were able to craft the three minute single i wrote most of the albums myself now i write everything myself a lot with my son now um but they were able to do that and we worked hand in hand. They wrote only for me. When they wrote me a song, they wrote me a song and it was tailored to my personality and my stage persona and the way that I am. So much so that when it, the lines did blur, I remember I was doing the vocal for, for a song called Mama's Boy and I stopped singing and I said to Chapman, 
you know, when you write me a song next time, can you please give me some breathing space? <laughs> and he said, Susie, Susie, you wrote this. I went, fine. <laughs> okay, okay, forget what I just said. But that's how they blurred, you know. We really, we were a good team together, absolutely. Not a lot of people, certainly over here, would rem uh, would know that you then uh, get back into the USA. You've got on tour as you as the headline act, your support artists are Kiss and uh, and Blue Oyster Cult. And Rufus and, oh, God, who else? ZZ Top. Amazing. Uh, How did you yeah, get amazing. on with the Kiss boys back then? They were they were fine. <laughs> they were fine. You know, it, when I saw them backstage, I thought, what are you wearing? <laughs> <laughs> they were fine. I did um, a show with Gene Simmons, that rock show that he had. We got along fine. He's actually... Very, we had dinner after the show and very intelligent company. I enjoyed his company, very smart guy, fascinating to talk to. Yeah, fine, absolutely fine. Rufus actually were real good too. And that was kind of like the influence for Your Mama Won't Like Me album. You know, we put on yeah, horns yeah. And, and girl backing vocals for the first time on one of my records. Now you were in Memphis. I know everybody has probably mentioned this to you so many times down the years. Elvis's people on the phone. Elvis gets on the phone. You've got all shook up, doing well. He wants to meet you. You say you weren't ready. And I know since you said you wouldn't have written the song, but is there not a little bit of you that regrets not meeting him? I just I just think everything happens for a reason. And I, I firmly believe that. I wasn't supposed to meet him. He sat on my shoulder my entire career, kind of like a spiritual advisor. Had I met him, that would not be there. He's he's appeared everywhere. Everywhere. That phone call, you know, when I when I didn't want to meet him, all shook up was in the lower end of the charts. Um and then when I was uh, get, when I got the part on Happy Days and I I went to, I didn't get it yet. I went to the audition, read for the part. And they said, go back to your hotel room and we'll call you. We have to discuss you now. So I was had turned the TV on and I was on the phone. They called me. They said, you've got it for three seasons. Yes, excited, excited. And right at that moment, it said, newsflash, the king is dead. Right at the same time, I'm getting that. You can't write this kind of stuff. No. Then, no, then when I came back to film my first two episodes... They brought somebody over to me and they said, Susie, we'd like you to meet this man. His name is Nudie and he's going to be making your clothes for the show. And he's he was Elvis's personal tailor. You can't write this stuff, you Mate. know. And then um, finally, I think finally, I wrote the song Singing with Angels, which is a very beautiful tribute to him. I recorded it with James Burton and the Jordanaires in Nashville. I mean, come on, how much closer can you get to them than that? And and uh, I've met everybody involved with him. I was good friends with Joris Pizzito before he passed away. Mm. I've met everybody. But when we were standing outside taking a break from the studio, I played James Burton a couple tracks from my album that I was working on. And he said to me, Susie, I gotta tell you, you know, you have the same thing Elvis had. Well, I nearly died when he said that. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the only way I can explain it is everything you do is you. What a compliment. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So I wasn't supposed to meet him. Most 
the city died in a freedom fight Underneath the fires on a restless night Oh yeah Set the sky alight Black and white and blues down a dead end street Cocktails hitting shoes in between the beat Oh yeah some pretty uh, incredible welcomes over the years from uh, the various places you've been you know the uh, the bikers over in in australia but does anything quite beat the moment that you walk on stage 
for the first time at Arnold's. And all you can hear in the background is Ralph saying, hubba, hubba, hubba. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. That was such a great experience. Um, and in fact, uh, I was standing backstage waiting to go out for my first appearance on that show. And a little bit nervous, naturally. I hadn't acted before the audience is there. And I was standing there ready, ready to go out, waiting for my cue. And uh, Henry came up to me and he said, how you doing? How you doing? I said, yeah, fine. A little bit nervous. He said, you're going to be great. He says, you're going to kill him. And he tapped me on the back and he went, go, you're on. So I sauntered out with my leather Tuscadero walk, got to my mark, ready to speak. <laughs> and the director said, excuse me, Miss Quattro. It's like somebody threw cold water on me. I said, what? He said, what are you doing out here? I said, well, it's my cue. He said, no, you have another page. I said, fine. I went back and Henry was on the floor laughing. He had sent me out on purpose. I said, you bastard. And he said, you know what, Susie? Go and enjoy yourself now. And the cheer I got when I came out at the right time was enormous. I'm kind of glad he did that. You know, what more can you do but to come out early? You know? beat uh, Debbie Harry and Joan Jett for that part? No, it was only Debbie. I thought Joan was up for it, but she wasn't even really known yet. So she wasn't up for it. Uh, but Debbie, they considered Debbie, they considered me. And then the, 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 the 
people in charge saw my picture on one of their daughter's wall from the cover of Rolling Stone. Mm. And they said, that's who we want. That's exactly who we're looking for. Brilliant. And act, acting took on a, a pretty big role for you, didn't it, in the in the 1980s? I mean, you were appearing anywhere apart from Annie Get Your Gun. And I mean, I know obviously we're talking about the happy days, but perhaps you know, for many people, the most famous of all of your appearances was alongside the one and only Arthur Daly and Terry McCann in Minder. Oh, yeah, that was good. I enjoyed that. I, I, I didn't want to be typecast as being another Tuscadero for the rest of my life. And I did yeah, yeah, indeed yeah. spread my wings. I did uh, I did Minder. I did Dempsey and Maypiece. I did Midsummer Murders. I did Ab Fab. Uh, I wrote a musical called Tallulah Who. Willie Rushton did the script. I wrote the musical Shirley, Shirley Roden, and I played Tallulah. That was wonderful. To see your name up there, Susie Quattro starring in Tallulah Who, written by How Great. You know, um, yeah, I've done a little bit of everything. I've had my own talk show on TV, been on BBC Radio 2 for 15 years. Mm. Uh, I've released four books. I'm now working on my fifth and sixth simultaneously, um, working on songs for the next album. And of course, promoting the devil in me. This is the 18th album then, continuing. It's been a really good run of form the last few years. I mean, you've been extremely prolific. Uh, 2017, you teamed up with uh, Andy Scott and Don Powell for that Quattro Scott and Powell uh, group, which was really very well received. How did uh, how did that come about? That was an idea that my husband had years and years ago before it happened. He said, you and Andy Scott and Don Powell would make a great super group. And I thought, yeah, yeah, we would. And so we kind of talked about it us guys but we didn't find the time then we found the time we went in we didn't have a blueprint and everybody got to choose two covers each just to see where we were going so we started with that and then it went great and i said to andy let's try to write a few things which we did great album really really great album we're very proud of it um it got to number 16 in the australian charts mm. and uh we qs and p were actually my support group on my two, two, 2017 Leather Forever Encore tour. So I supported myself. I went out as the bass player single with QSP, changed yeah. back into my jumpsuit and went out as me. How many people can do that? I sang 37 Not songs, 37 any. songs a night. 2019's No Control, first collaboration with your son, Richard, worked so well. Here you are, and you've you've done it again with the devil in me. Now, let's not uh, prevaricate here. This is your best album since the mid seventies. Yeah, I think so, and I think it's a case of it being a perfect storm. I've tried to analyze it. Um, we got our feet wet with no control. You know, there was no blueprint. We didn't know what we were doing. We were having fun, writing, enjoying. There was no limits. There was no tracks to run on. Just let's have fun. And that's what we did. And then when Richard got his confidence then on that album, so then this one, we kind of knew more how we were together. We kind of knew more where we wanted to go. And we did put the benchmark. We said, first of all, we have to beat no control and we have to make it as good as the first album as as important and so we had the benchmark and we had the vibe we had all around us what was going on you know so richard brought his 36 year old 
years of, of that generation of music and also soaked in his DNA watching his mom on stage since the time he can remember. So he had Susie Quattro running through his blood, definitely. And I brought my 57 years in the business and my life experience to the table. And we have somehow created a perfect storm. In a strange way, I gave birth to him and he's given rebirth to me. And I think that's just beautiful. Is this the album that you've been looking for for the last yes. couple of decades? Yes, it is. This is the one. It really just put a stamp on everything in me, everything that I have to offer, including, you know, like my heart and soul, which is very Motown, Love's Gone Bad, that's nearly sort of bluesy, jazzy. It's got everything that I'm able to do is on this album, plus it's just some stonking rockers, you know. Betty Who. What, what's the story behind that? Because that's, well, actually, that's probably my favourite track on the album, but what is the story behind Betty Who? Um, my son works with a with a girl called Biba Doobie, and uh, she had a tour bus called Betty Who, and he had this riff, and he said, I want to call this Betty Who, and he told me it was named after a tour bus, but I took it inside, started to work on it with my bass, finding the melody, finding what I think it should be about, and I made it about a groupie. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Betty, Betty, Betty Who? <laughs> A little bit tongue-in-cheek, I couldn't help it. And it really works on that level. Burn 
But just when you think you're getting the uh, the story of the album and the vibe of the album, all of a sudden, you know, the, the ballads kick in, the blues kick in with isolation blues. We've got a little bit of uh, late night jazz, you know, in the in the dark. These are things that um, you seem to embrace as much as you did the, as you said, the the stonking uh, rockers. These are all in me. They've been in me forever. You know, I've got a huge musical knowledge. I mean, I come from a musical family. I'm a Billie Holiday fan. I had Motown in me. So th this album... It just it awakened all the all the things in me. I could, I'm doing I'm being Susie Quattro, and even on the ballads I'm being me. You know, like my heart and soul. I sang in a voice I didn't know I had. It was nice to find it. Love's gone bad. Everybody's loving the mood of that in the dark with the saxophone. It, I'm able to use my entire life in this album and still be me, and this is why it works so well. All the pieces fit together like a big jigsaw puzzle. And the other thing, of course, which you have, which, you know, certain, a lot of other people don't or haven't been able to carry with them is your voice, which is still in incredible condition. Yeah, I, I'm I always have to touch wood when I say it, because really, traditionally, your voice should go down as you get older and my voice is improved and I don't get it. Touch wood, I don't get it. I don't, maybe it's just cause I have always taken care of it. I mean, I can scream nonstop. It doesn't seem to hurt it. I can, I can do the blues. I can do the jazz. I can do the ballads. I can do the rock. It's um, yeah, my voice is the best it's ever been. I don't know why. I don't know why. And if you look at, you just you look at this genre of rock and classic rock, um, it's it's in very good health. We've had fabulous albums from the likes of Deep Purple. Alice Cooper's just released a great album. We've had ACDC. Do you think people now are getting to the stage where we don't look at age or anything to do with it? We just put on a on an album and think, actually, this is this is seriously good. And they go to see people live and they think that's a great show. Have we got over the age thing? I don't pay any attention to two things, gender or age. Mm. I, I'm quite proud of it. I, I don't I don't feel my age at all, but I don't I don't run away from it. I'm not chasing 30. I am 70. I announce it on stage when I go up there because I'm proud of it. But I don't know. I stop somewhere in my head. I just you know, I played for 14,000 people. Uh, last New Year's Eve, the last New Year's Eve that mm. we were allowed, 14,000 people. So how can you think about age or retirement? or As long as I've still got something to say, and boy, do I ever. And as long as I still have the energy, and boy, do I ever. And as long as I feel like I feel, and, and I think I look pretty good for 70, you know, I'm not, but I'm not pushing it. And my famous line, got to say my famous line, I will retire when I turn my back on the audience and I shake my ass and there's silence. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and so lastly, what, what is there left for you to achieve in, in this business? I try, and I've always done it, to not set goalposts. I... I like to not have them. I like to just keep going. So, I mean, the movie comes next of my life. You know, that's what we're working on. And Were you talking about Scarlett Johansson being you in the film well, about you? She's the one I thought would be good at it. I don't know why. There's something that connects with me with her. I think it might be her 
her sex appeal that she doesn't try to be sexy. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. You know, and I, I kind of have that too, and I, and I don't ever try, and it makes me embarrassed to even say it, but I sense that that's the same kind of thing with her. from one Detroit icon to another. It is Alice Cooper who is back with Detroit Stories, which has become his first number one album on the Billboard sales charts ever. It doesn't disappoint either. Remember, when he gets going, it is very difficult to stop him. 2018's Paranormal, another excellent album of his, ran for an hour and seven minutes, 18 songs, 
in total. This isn't far behind. 15 songs in total runs for 50 minutes. So where and when was the album recorded? In Detroit. There was nothing ever, ever like it before. You know, when one little tiny germ that nobody can even see stops the world, it kind of gives you a whole new look at the world. And uh, I, I, we were in Berlin, in fact, doing uh, Rock Meets Classic. That show ended and we got the uh, advice right then. They said, if you're not out of Germany in the next 30 or so hours, we're closing the borders. So that was the end of that tour and we haven't toured since then. That was March 7th. In some ways you look at it and you go, well, maybe we needed a year off. You know, but yeah, I always look at the optimistic part of it and uh, families stayed together. The world pulled together, you know, in a lot of places uh, the way the world should have pulled together to help out people that, that couldn't help themselves. And uh, I saw a lot of cooperation and I don't think I ever washed my hands that much in my life. Uh, but. I saw the whole world doing that, and I said, okay, good, let's cooperate with each other and beat this thing. But 2020 was just an amazingly, it'll go down in history as the, maybe the strangest year ever in the world. He did his fair share of helping out as well, didn't he, uh, Alice Cooper? You might well have seen those pictures of him serving food to the uh, young and the homeless at the shelter. Great guy. Anyway, back to Detroit. Was it really the hard rock capital of USA. And what were the differences between Detroit, LA, and New York? You know, Los Angeles has the doors, and it had the doors, and they were kind of a sexy rock and roll sound. Uh, San Francisco had its uh, Grateful Dead. And New York had the Young Rascals. Uh, Detroit had the Stooges, the MC5, Alice Cooper, Bob Seger, Ted Nugent. We were all hard rock, guitar-driven rock and roll bands. and. For some reason, that just became the home of hard rock. And it was in the same place as Motown, which was interesting. We had actually two musical movements going on at the same time, Motown and hard rock, and they both got along very well together. So I said, let's, let's do a, an album about Detroit or concerning Detroit or something about in Detroit and record there, write the album there, only use Detroit players and make it pure Detroit. And I guarantee you it'll come out to be a roaring rock and roll album because that's what Detroit is. When we met Bob Ezrin, and Bob Ezrin became our George Martin, um, he organized us. He took all the raw energy and all the raw, what I would say, talent. We didn't have a signature in our sound. Bob came in and gave us that so that when you heard a Alice Cooper record on the radio, you'd go, oh, that's Alice Cooper, because we didn't have that before. So we give Bob Ezrin an awful lot of credit for the development of uh, what Alice Cooper is, and I still work with Bob 50 years, 40 years later. I'm still working with Bob, and we're still creating Alice. Detroit's a tough city. And so they don't like soft rock. They want hard rock. And they want their bands to have, uh, to be very aggressive. They want the bands to have attitude. 
they want you to take them by the throat and shake them. They do not want to be lulled to sleep by, by their music. Every time I go back there, I left there when I was 10 years old. And uh, I, I lived in Arizona and, and California for, you know, after that for the next 60 years or so. But people say, where are you from? I go, Detroit. Because there's a, there's a certain amount of, you know, pride in living and, and being from there. It's a tough city, but it's a real music city. Now, of course, uh, all work and no play makes uh, Alice a rather dull boy. So how much of a party scene was there back in the heyday? You know, we n nobody ever thought about living past 30, <laughs> to be honest with you. It was uh, a, a pretty much a 24-hour party. You were playing the East Town, whereas Bob Seger and Ted Nugent was playing the Grandy, and Elton John was at the Fox, and there was like six different venues going on that night, and every one was packed. And afterwards, we'd all go, where's the party tonight? Oh, the party's at uh, the MC5's house in Ann Arbor. Uh, next week, where's the party next week? Oh, it's going to be at Alice's house. Okay, uh, where next week? Oh, we're going up to Bob Seger's. There was a giant 300-person party after every weekend. And it was a real rock and roll party. I mean, you know, I mean, it was a no-holds-barred kind of party. Now, is it still possible these days, not only for Alice, but for anybody to actually shock an audience. don't really think you can shock an audience anymore, but you have to remember in 1970, 1969, 70, 71, everybody was peace and love and, and you know, everything was wonderful and groovy and everything. And Alice Cooper was not that. Uh, Alice Cooper was a little bit of uh, violence on stage, a little bit of glam, uh, certainly a lot of energy in that show. And we scared a lot of people. And I think people started making up stories about Alice Cooper that we, things that we never did, but were shocking things that Alice did. And, and you hear that about Ozzy too. Ozzy ate a bat, you know, and this and that. They want their rock stars to be really extremely not them. You know, we're, we're, we're something mythical. We're something legendary. And I was exactly in the right place for this villain of rock and roll to, to absorb all that and to send it back out. I'd go on stage with a pair of black leather pants and my girlfriend's slip and it would be all ripped with blood all over it and makeup and the thing. And audiences would go, what happened? They're immediately, the first time they see you, they want to know what, what how, how did it get bloody? How did it get, you know? So you were, they were immediately immersed right into the image and into the something was going on with this band and I gotta know more about this. I see a resurgence in rock right now. I think rock, as crazy as it sounds, is, you know, when you listen, go to the Grammys, there's no rock and roll there. Maybe the Foo Fighters, maybe Green Day, you know, or what they pick one band that's gonna be their rock band. It used to be every single act in rock was in the Grammys. I like rock being in a place right now where we're sort of the outlaws again. So rock and roll's in a good place. We're, we're back to what we should be. We're the villains. We're the rock and roll outlaws. What a good name for a band, the rock and roll outlaws. Anyway, let's finish with a track then from Alice's new album, Detroit Stories. And this is Detroit City 2021.
great track from a great album that is alice cooper's detroit stories it is out now and that is it from us thank you for your company don't forget you can download and stream all of the previous editions of the show via the website at www.theclassicrockpodcast.com if you missed any of the recent shows uh, we had a great 50th anniversary of 1971 in january so anything of consequence from that year is included in that show, Michael Schenker dropped in for a chat about his new album from MSG. It's called Immortal. We got tracks from that as well in one of the recent shows. And Jolyn Turner, last time out, uh, joined us to reminisce about great times alongside of Richie Blackmore in Rainbow during the 1980s. Those all available now. Uh, you can get in touch with us as well on Facebook at Tim Cable at Rock Classics. And that is it then. Until next time, from me, Tim Cable. Bye-bye for now.